Well, we are in the most well-known story of First Samuel, if not the entire life of David, which bears no pressure on preaching it properly. Um, in First Samuel 17, if you want to turn in your Bibles there, it's one of the earliest stories I remember as a church kid, and it's well-known. And there's a lot of hype for good reason. It's really a turning point in the book of 1 Samuel. So many things come together. Uh, This event is when Saul's attitude um, changes for the worse. And this event is when David shows his heart. It's a turning point in the text. And part of me wonders at calling it even a climax because I remember from literary class, climaxes usually happen a little bit before the end. There's a falling action and the book is done. There's still a lot of 1 Samuel to go, but it's certainly a climax of sorts in the book of 1 Samuel. Should have had that up earlier, sorry. Um, We must have a king over us. The Israelites had told Samuel. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Israel had to have been a weird place to live in without a king. We in America have a president which is beginning to feel a lot like a lowercase king, and perhaps has for quite some time. But you read the book of the Judges in the first seven to eight chapters of 1 Samuel, you recognize this, that the Israelites feel like they are on their own. Because they're supposed to be pledging faithfulness to a leader of their nation that they cannot see. It's why the other nations thought they were kind of funny. (laughs) But after things like the Exodus, they didn't doubt that Israel had some sort of leader, Israel, an entire race of slaves, set free from the most powerful nation on earth. In large part with its military drowned in the middle of the Red Sea. Don't mess with Israel. Their God is for real. But then Israel slipped into sin. God removed his protection and people group after people group conquered and attacked Israel. And it was never until Israel got their minds screwed on right and they prayed and God would send deliverers to rescue them. And so it had to come down to it for some in Israel. How do we know we'll ever be good enough to be saved? We don't have, we don't want to have to worry every time a threat happens if God will move upon someone to rescue us or if that person that God would call will answer that call. No, we want a king like everyone else, a king that will be there in the flesh and blood and will save us. Saul was designated king. Saul demonstrated his ability and willingness to fight a war when a brutal guy named Nahash the Ammonite rose up. He was notorious for coming to tribes and ripping out the right eye of Israelite soldiers. And when he posed a threat to all Israel... We read God's Spirit rushed upon Saul. 
Just like God's Spirit would rush upon the judges of old and he delivered Israel, Saul was accepted as king. He fought the war for his people. Well, let's see how Saul is doing now with this threat from the Philistines. I invite you to stand one last time if you're able. Let's read 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 24 together. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sokah in Judah and camped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damimum. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons during Saul's reign and, excuse me, and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were Eliab the firstborn, Abinadab the next, and Shema the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these ten portions of the cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation, facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all... All the Israelite men saw Goliath. They retreated from him, terrified. Let's pray. Father, as we begin the the study of this most well-known story, we pray that we would hear your voice, not mine. We ask that your spirit who inspired the writing of these words, you who oversaw providentially history, would take these events and use them in our own lives, so that we might love and serve you better and be, be like Jesus because of it. 
have your way in our hearts and minds. And for any who have hard hearts, we pray for softened hearts to hear your words. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Philistines in the book of 1 Samuel have existed sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground, as a nagging threat. The growing threat, the the elephant in the room that sometimes gets forgotten about, sometimes gets, you know, treated, symptoms are fought, but never dealt with altogether. Always there. There was a war early on in the book of Samuel where the Philistines not only won the battle against the Israelites, they stole the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the representation of Yahweh to Israel. And in a very interesting series of events, Yahweh single-handedly delivers the Ark back to Israel without any warring. You can read about that in chapters 4 through 6. In chapter 7, the Philistines show up again 20 years later. But through Samuel's interceding and Israel's obedience, the Lord defeats the Philistines and Israel is victorious. And the Philistines kind of fell to the backdrop after that. Again, Saul becomes king. He was victorious by God's power over the Ammonites. But then in chapter 13, the Philistines show up again. This is where Saul made a sacrifice when he got impatient waiting for Samuel. This is also where Saul sat around stewing, worrying that he was going to lose. And so Saul's son Jonathan and his armor bearer scaled the mountains of you're going to die and one move your toast. It's implied in the Hebrew actually this time. (laughs) But then Jonathan and his armor bearer attacked and was victorious by God's power against 20 people in a Philistine garrison. Saul decides to take that opportunity. He gets antsy and he ends up running off the Philistines after his son did the hard work. But they're not dead altogether. And it's like this time the Philistines are thinking, we got to put a decisive end to this here. So they're gunning for the Israelites and they mean business. And you probably couldn't tell by reading the geography here, so I'll help you out. But the Philistines gathered their forces for war at Soka and Judah and camped between Soka and Azekah and Ephes Damimim. Read those fast, loud, and confident. Nobody knows if you're saying them right or not. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. And then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Soka was about 14 to 15 miles west of Bethlehem. That's where David's from. Soka was apparently on the Philistine-Israelite border. Then, Azekah was only three miles northwest of Soka and five miles east of Gath, which is where Goliath comes from. All of this is happening in a region called Ephes Damimum. While the name is hard to translate, one commentary makes a good case for this to mean the bloody border. In other words, this is an area where Israel, Israel and Philistia are constantly clashing. And moving from the west all the way from Gath to the east in Bethlehem is the Valley of Elah. It's a straight shot to Bethlehem. 
then to Gibeah, which is where Saul lives and where he reigns, Mizpah, which is where Samuel has led in worship services before. So Bethlehem, Mizpah, Gibeah, the heart of Israel was threatened by the Philistines in this war. A route along the valley led the Philistines from Philistia to Israel. In other words, Israel could be done for in a matter of days if the Israelites didn't defend themselves. On top of this straight shot from the Philistines to the leadership of Israel, we read, Then a champion, the Hebrew here is literally man between two armies, named Goliath from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. I mentioned this back the first time we went, we started in Samuel. And what I'm about to say does not mean that I believe the Bible thinks tall people are always enemies. I'm grateful for that. However, it's interesting that when the Bible mentions the height of people, usually such people eventually end up being bad guys. We think about what did the spies say? There were giants in the land. Um, Even Samuel here, back in 1 Samuel 10, we were told that he stood ahead above everyone else. And we all know that Saul, sorry, that was Saul who stood ahead above everyone else. And we all know how he ends. Well, the height here for Goliath is extremely tall. And aside from just being his true height, Perhaps symbolically, it raises the stakes for us, excuse the pun, raises to show the extreme threat that this man is to Israel. We read on in verse 5, And he wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron's point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He's got so much gear that he needs a completely separate body to just have a shield in front of him. Now, with all this gear on, he's probably not super agile, (laughs) loaded down by all this gear, but he's also rather invincible. Arrows would likely plink off the shield, if not his armor. And if somebody decides to charge him, he could probably pick them up by their neck, whoever is attacking them, and throw them 20 yards. Or maybe drop them and slam them into the ground and then stomp on them with his huge feet. It's threatening, isn't it? Israel is supposed to be God's people. And they've been in tight spots before, but this... See, the Philistines, these threatening people that have always been there. Yeah, we've warred against. Or, yeah, these Philistines are raising a fuss again. But now, they're the front and center threat. Now, they're only miles away from overtaking the central leadership cities of Israel. Now, they've got all their menace and all their warring threats realized in one man. Israel's wanted a king to fight their wars, and so they have Saul. But now everything they've feared is represented in Goliath. We haven't been here before, have we? Never have we always known about the bad things in the world, the opposing system against God, where Jesus tells us in John fifteen eighteen, if the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. 
Never has that menace, that threat, that it's always in the background come before us in the foreground. Or has it? (laughs) The stakes are high. This Goliath, this champion, again, this man between two armies, is what he is. This would happen in ancient Near Eastern wars from time to time to, to spare the massive amounts of bloodshedding. Two armies could just send forward representatives of their armies. And that's what we see Goliath doing here as he taunts the Israelites. Verses 8 through 10, he stood up and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. In other words, winner takes all. Let's skip the bloodshed. Let's skip the mindless hours of warring. Let's deal with this simply, says the almost 10 feet tall invincible giant. Not that warring would be any better because then Israel would have Goliath and all the Philistine army to deal with. And so the question is, who's qualified? Who's able? Who's the man for the hour? And what's more is that that question is already answered. Goliath alluded to it when he first referred to the Israelites. He didn't call them Israel at first. What did he call them? Are you not servants of Saul? He was signaling Saul out. That's why he first asked them, why are you lining up for battle as an army? His point is, just send me Saul. He's the king you want to fight for you anyways. So I'll just take him on one on one. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistines, they lost their courage and were terrified. So that's where the king whom Israel wanted to fight their wars is at. The king who himself is ahead above everyone else with the rest of the Israelites lost courage and was terrified. Now I know what you might be thinking, wouldn't you be afraid too, Kevin? I know I would. Saul doesn't even come up with a plan of attack though. (laughs) We don't know, but it doesn't seem likely that Saul says, find me Samuel, let's pray to God about this. Uh, Or, you know, since they parted on bad terms, he could have at least said, find me a holy man, a prophet. No seeking out the Lord's help, no coming up with a plan of attack, no leadership. We do find later on that, of course, Saul has made offers to a would-be opponent against Goliath later on in the chapter, but that seems to be it. I want to back up to Goliath's threat, though. I defy the ranks of Israel today. Defy, blaspheme, reproach, upbraid. One study note would say this, that it means to literally heap shame. Goliath is here taunting Israel saying, Your army is out to fight? (laughs) And you are all cowards and terrified and I'm here in the flesh reminding you of that fact. You know, I imagine like a button, if a button continued to deliver these feelings of cowardice and terror and self-pity and fright and shame and embarrassment, Goliath would be laughing his head off in front of them, pressing that button over and over. 
I know I'm the one in control here. Just gaze at me as I lay on this button again and again. The word defy will appear at least six times in the Hebrew throughout the whole account. It's a theme. Israel is being defied. They're being reproached. They're being upbraided and exposed. See, this is a realization they're coming to that of war with their king who will fight their wars for them. He doesn't. He's just as cowardly and terrified as they are. One commentary asked the question, where is Jonathan in all this? See, he shows up in chapter 18. He befriends David literally right after the whole ordeal. And the last time we saw Jonathan, he was one-upping his dad. Like I said, he was taking on a Philistine garrison, he and his armor-bearer, two against twenty. But perhaps even here, Jonathan is just as stagnant as the rest of Israel. We don't know. It doesn't say. But like I said about Saul himself and whether Jonathan is or not, who can blame any Israelite here? It is a, a moment, no doubt, where the fate of Israel as a kingdom is in the balance. And it seems whatever move they make, it better be well thought, it better be well considered, because the future of the kingdom is in jeopardy any way you slice it. They lost their courage and were terrified. Does the world ever make you feel like your kingdom is in jeopardy? And I say your kingdom, but I mean the kingdom of God. The values, the ways, the very infrastructure of the soul and the heart of everything we hold dear. Is it ever, is it ever minimized? Is it ever spat on, defied, blasphemed? reproached, upbraided, misconstrued so that the loud voices against the kingdom are to be more socially received and acceptable when our kingdom feels in jeopardy. And it becomes a rock and a hard place. It becomes, I need to calculate my move here. We need to calculate our move because it feels like one move in the wrong direction could possibly bring the wrath of those taunting voices on us. Courage moves into cowardice and confidence sinks into fright and terror. The state of of Israel hangs on a thread. The stakes are high. And this is when the author moves us to hope. Takes us to a different scene altogether. Reminds us that another king has been anointed already. Now, David was the son of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. I'm going to take you down a quick side trail just to humor me. Because maybe, maybe you haven't been confused, but I've heard this term Ephrathite before and I never knew where it came from. Apparently I need to read my Bible more. <laughs> we see in First Chronicles 2, if you follow me here, I even have a little genealogy tree up here. Remember one of the twelve sons of the man Israel is also known as Jacob. Himself, the son is named Judah. Judah's grandson, if I read First Chronicles 2 right, is a man named Hezron. Hezron has a son named Caleb. Caleb married a gal named Ephrath. Ephrath's great-grandson, again, if I read 1 Chronicles 2 right, is the namesake of Bethlehem. So, just as the Israelites are called the sons of Abraham, Israel's grandfather, or called Jews from Israel's son Judah, so Bethlehemites are also called Ephrathites based on Bethlehem's great-grandmother. Does that make sense? 
Not that this has anything super significant to do with the passage, but now if you have the same question I ever did, it should be answered. You're welcome. That was for free. Now, the author here introduces David. Some folks think that when the author seems to reintroduce a character, maybe it reveals that the book of Samuel was edited and compiled and put together uh, and these sorts of quirks as evidence of that because David was already introduced. Could be, or it could just be the author's intent to jog your memory. Just a thought. Jesse had eight sons during Saul's reign. And, excuse me, I did that again. And during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and their names were Eliab the firstborn, Abinadab the next, and Shema the third, and David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Now, the immediate context of this passage seems to tell us the reason that David is not going to war with his older brothers is so he could help his dad, already an old man on the farm, to tend to his flock in Bethlehem. David could have been bringing food and getting news from his siblings from time to time. But also, some have paired this information right here that David kept going back and forth, and they will emphasize the words, from Saul, to tend to his father's flock in Bethlehem. And if we go back a chapter, we remember that David was doing what? He was playing the liar for Saul, and he was his armor bearer. And so some would say maybe David shared his time between the palace and the father's flock. But perhaps that was a few years prior by this point, and maybe by the time that the heat between Israel and the Philistines warmed up again, maybe David went home for good. We don't know. We'll have to deal with another interesting aspect of David and Saul's relationship. When later in this chapter, it appears they're having a first meeting again. We'll go over that next week. For now, David is coming from Bethlehem from time to time to his older brothers. Again, Bethlehem is directly in the path of travel in the Valley of Elah. David's home is threatened by the Philistines. So as if we're going to have to get this connection, the author briefly takes us back to the scene with Goliath. And he says, every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. Numbers in the scriptures often have symbolic meaning. And in Hebrew culture, 40 is often a number to designate trial, testing, and peril. 40 days and nights in a flood, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus. Doesn't mean that these are not legitimate 40s happening all the time. They probably are. Because if you read through these accounts, there's nothing to suggest that they aren't truly 40s. For 40 days, every morning and every evening, Goliath is coming out, pressing their buttons. You think that would ever wear down on them? Oh, look, you're still afraid. <laughs> you're still not moving. Your king is still a coward. Israel's freedom hangs in the balance. You're sitting here to protect your wives, your sons and daughters. All your farms at home are going to rot because you're not even fighting. And at this point, you're not even going to give your families, and I tried when you return home, you're cowards. Heaping on shame. One day, Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain, along with these ten loaves of bread for your brothers, and hurry to their camp. 
Apparently this was kind of a norm that families would be the ones providing food for their own on the battlefield. Jesse continues, verse 18, Also take these ten portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. In other words, give me the news. Let me know if they're okay. Confirmation. Verse 19, they are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting. Uh-huh, yeah, they're fighting <laughs> with the Philistines. Verse 20, so David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up, set out as Jesse had charged him. Again, he's going about 15 miles. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Now, we don't know if this is in the midst of the 40 days, if this is the 40th day, is this after the 40th, what is it? but it's, it's got to be a little bit confusing that they're going out every morning to shout a battle cry. Kind of a, who are we kidding? <laughs> Lining up in formation, shouting our battle, who are we kidding by this point? Or who knows, maybe most days they have this sense of, this is the day. We're going to take Goliath. We're going to free Israel from this threat. The Philistines are going down. But then Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster, ran to the battle line when he arrived. He asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him terrified. It's no good. <laughs> Just like every other day, not this day. He's pressing the buttons again. Saul's not budging. Nobody else on the battle line is moving and Goliath is right. He's got it all figured out. There's no one strong enough to face him. And the feelings are settling in of living with the fact that they are the ones, they are the cowards who are going to let Israel being taken over by their longtime threat, the Philistines, the same people who once took the ark, will now take them captive. The path from the Valley of Elah to very important cities, Gibeah where Saul's throne was, Mizpah where Samuel the religious voice and leader of Israel resided, Bethlehem where David was from, they're all ticking time bombs. But you and I know that hope just arrived on the battle line. It arrived in the form of David. And the reason hope arrived in, is because of what David believes. It won't be David who saves the day, but God that he trusts in. And here's what I want you to know. If you're feeling like the stakes are high, if you're feeling like the world has a champion or many champions with loud voices and they're defying God, heaping on shame, reproach, and if the kingdom that, that you thought God was king of seems like it's threatened, if it seems like the path is clear and it's just one battle away from the kingdom's foundations being overtaken, your feeling in this matter could not be further away from the truth. Because hope has arrived already in the form of Jesus, whose foundation is secure. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, says the author of Hebrews. The day Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, the triumphal entry, John records Jesus saying, Now is the judgment of this world. 
Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. John says he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Do you hear the paradox? Jesus is about to die. The enemies will appear to win, but Jesus says with confidence and with truth. And indeed, the reality is this, that the ruler of the world will be cast out and Jesus will be victorious. We're told by Paul in Colossians that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him, in Christ. I like what the message says there. He marched them naked through the streets. What this means is that you and I are in a winning war. The central locations of our kingdom is no longer threatened. We who have fled to Jesus for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, says Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. When the world threatens God, they're only heaping shame on themselves. God has already won. Any battle before us lays in the long shadow of victory won at the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we look at this passage where Goliath was taunting the kingdom of Israel. And the stakes were high and the psychological warfare going on with Goliath day after day grinding them down. We ourselves are not surrounded just by one booming voice, but lots of voices, whether it be social media, news, people we know, books we read, TV shows. And a lot of them want to defy you. A lot of them seem to minimize your kingdom and seem to think that your kingdom is done and over with. Help us not to forget that just as David arrived at the battle line, you arrived at the battle line a long time ago and you slew Goliath a long time ago. Father, there's victory found in you. Kings and kingdoms will pass away, but you will never pass away. We thank you for that. Help us to know what we can be doing in your kingdom as your citizens. Father, and we just pray that also we would continue to invite others to the winning kingdom that you have. We thank you. We ask that we would carry this truth with us, that it would speak volumes to us throughout the week, throughout the days to come. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.